The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 21 to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly he shall rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Okay, good stuff. We're in Joshua chapter 7 now. It's verses 1 through 15, and this is called the Valley of Ahor. It's part 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zavdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth Aven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about three thousand men went up from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shevarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. 
for they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. In the verses today, it notes that the people of Israel had sinned. This is despite only one person having sinned. Regardless, the Lord turned away from them and allowed them to be struck down before their enemies. In this, Adam Clark wrote, It is impossible that God should turn against his people if they had not turned away from him. This is an important point to consider, not only from a reading of the biblical history of the nation, but also from reading the extra-biblical state of them. And the reason for this is that the extra-biblical history of Israel is actually not extra-biblical at all. The things that have come about in their history since their dispersion are spoken of in the Bible in great detail, carefully fulfilling what it said would happen. Because of this, we can have every confidence that what is recorded about their future will come about as well. And there is a reason for this. That is because the Lord has covenanted with them and because his name rests upon them. The psalmist confirms that the two, the Lord and Israel, are united in this regard. Here's what the psalmist says from the 83rd Psalm, our text verse today. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace and do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult and those who hate you have lifted up their head. The psalmist identifies the enemies of Israel as the Lord's enemies. This was true and it remains true to this day. Even though the Lord has had Israel under the curses and punishments of the law, he has also carefully kept them as a people for exactly this reason. What happens to them is a corporate thing because they are one people under his covenant. Nothing will ever separate them from him because of this truth. As this is incontrovertible, it should give us every assurance that it is so with us too. God has covenanted with each believer in Christ. That means that just as sure as Israel's continued existence is, so is our own salvation. To avoid error, we need to not look at these things from our perspective. But this is just what we do, don't we? We look at failed marriages and say, well, the covenant is broken. And then we transfer that to Israel's relationship with the Lord. And when we see Israel in that light, the natural thing is to look at our own covenant relationship in that light as well. God has rejected Israel, and so he will reject us. It's up to us, not to him, to see things through to the end. Instead of this, and instead of looking at everything from our own perspective, we need to remove ourselves from the equation and view things from 
God's perspective. He does not fail. He does not make mistakes. And he will never go beyond his word. His word is a reflection of who he is. If we can hold fast to that thought, we will not fall into such grievous errors in our thinking. The eternal nature of God's decrees is one marvelous part of the treasure we can find in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got two thoughts for you today. The first is, but the people fled. It's verses 1 through 5. But the children of Israel, verse 1, but the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. And acted unfaithfully, sons, Israel. Unfaithful in the anathema. Both the verb and a noun form of the word ma'al are used here. It comes from a root meaning to cover. Thus it signifies to act unfaithfully or treacherously, as if covering over or hiding a deed. It is to commit a trespass. But notice that it says the children of Israel. Even before any further charge is made, the entire congregation is noted as having acted unfaithfully. The corporate nature of the people is that which is immediately highlighted. It is of note that the same word used here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament passage is nofizo, meaning to pilfer. It is also used in Acts 5 verse 2 in the account of Ananias and Sapphira. There, no corporate guilt is assigned because it was an offense of lying to the Holy Spirit. But the parallel between the two accounts is noteworthy. For now, the corporate nature of the act is highlighted, even though the treachery was found in only one man. Verse 1 continues, For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah. The meaning of the name Achan is not readily determined. The closest known word comes from the Chaldean word Ahana, meaning a serpent. In 1 Chronicles 2.7, he is called Ahar. That is based on a word used in Joshua 6, verse 18, and which will be used again in verse 7, verse 25. It means to trouble. Hence, he is the serpent who troubles, the serpent the troubler, or the serpent of trouble. He is noted as the son of Carmi. That is from the word karem, or vineyard. Thus, he is my vineyard, or vine dresser. He, in turn, is the son of Zavdi. That is from the word zavad, to give. The I is either possessive, or it refers to the Lord, and so he is either gift of Jehovah, or my gift. Zavdi is the son of Zerah. That is from the word zarach, to rise or come forth, as in the sun. Thus, he is dawning, rising of light, and so on. And he was born to Judah, meaning praise, praised, or let him, meaning God, be praised. If this is an unbroken genealogy, and because it has been 256 years since Judah and Zerah went down to Egypt, it means that the fathers bore the children at an average of 50 or more years of age. Of this person, Ahan, it says, verse 1 continues, took of the accursed things. It is singular, min hacharem, from the anathema. The entire city is as a whole. No part of it was to be taken for common use, but it was to be dedicated to the Lord, either through destruction or removal to the treasury of the house of the Lord. We went into great detail over the past two weeks over that. Verse 1 continues. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. 
Vayichar af Yehovah bivne Yisrael, and burned nostril Yehovah in sons Israel. The mental image is of the anger of the Lord being so great that he just stands in the middle of the people while smoke and fire proceed from his nostrils, burning among them. This sets the tone for what next occurs. Verse 2, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Vayishlach Yehoshua Anashim Mirecho Hai. And sent Joshua men from Jericho, the Ai. The name of the city is always prefixed by an article. Hai or the Ai. Ai means ruins or heap of ruins. It was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 12, and he moved from there to the mountain of east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Thus it is the ruins. Verse 2 continues, which is beside Beth-Aven on the east side of Bethel. Asher im Bet-Aven mikadem lebet-el, which with house wickedness from east to house God. Beth means house. Aven comes from aven, meaning wickedness, trouble, vanity. And when it speaks of vanity, it means something like idols, which are vain, iniquity, and so on. And so it means something like house of wickedness. Bethel or Bethel means house of God. It was also first noted in Genesis 12, verse 8, and was named that again by Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 19, after he had his dream of a ladder ascending to heaven. I want to stop there. That was such an exciting passage, Genesis 28, when Jacob laid down, he saw the ladder, the angels ascending and descending. I'm telling you what, every single word of that dream and everything that happened to him, his head on the stone, everything pictured Jesus, everything. It's marvelous how God just keeps weaving Christ into every picture. Amazing. In Hosea 4, 5, and 10, the prophet combines the two calling Bethel, where the calf of the northern tribes was set up, he calls it all Beth-Aven. Verse 2 continues, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. Vayomer alahem lemor alu veraglu et haaretz, and said to them to say, Go up and reconnoiter the land. The word regel means foot, and so they are to go out and foot the land, meaning reconnoiter. Verse 2 continues, so the men went up and spied out I. Vaya'alu ha'anashim ve'raglu et hai, and went up the men and reconnoitered the I. It is essentially the same command Joshua gave to the two men in chapter 2 concerning checking out the land along with Jericho. However, this time it only says he sent men without giving any specific number. Verse 3, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. The evaluation of I, based on their search, is that this will be an easy defeat. First, they know that the Lord is with them. Because of that, and because of the diminutive size of the city, it would be overkill to send a large force. Therefore, they say, verse 3 continues, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Ke'alapim ish kishloshet Alapim ish ya'alu ve'yaku et hai. According to 2,000 man or according to 3,000 man, let go up and strike the eye. The number is insignificant compared to the number of available fighting men. 
The reason for this is that the total number in the city, which is Joshua 8.5, you can go read that, is said to be about 12,000. Therefore, a fighting force of about 3,000 would be all the city could hope to muster. Other than their confidence in the Lord's presence, it would be the height of presumption for Israel to go into a battle with such a small force because the city would be fortified. Therefore, they would be fighting a comparable force while also trying to enter the city. The next words elevate that thought. Verse 3 continues, Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Do not weary there all the people, for few they. Here is a new word, yaga. It is from a primitive root signifying to grasp. As such, it means to be exhausted, tire, toil, be weary, and so on. When one is tired, he'll grasp onto something to hold himself up. This is the idea. It can be used in a physical or in a mental sense. In Isaiah, it says the following. This is the Lord speaking. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied, yaga, me with your iniquities. One can see the Lord saying, oh, I'm just worn out by these people and their wickedness. The men who checked out I feel that any more than a small force would be a total waste and the people would be wearied, meaning simply getting up and heading out to battle for no reason at all. Therefore, verse 4, so about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. It doesn't yet speak of any men falling in battle. It simply says that Israel fled before the men of Ai. This heightens the sense of the loss of the battle. Israel was simply unable to muster an attack, and it was apparent to them that the Lord was not with them, but it abandoned them to their own effort. Only after noting the disgrace of defeat are any of the particulars then noted. Verse 5, and the men of Ai struck down about 36 men. Using the word about, which is not in the Hebrew, makes absolutely no sense at all because it's a definite number. Vayaku mehem anshe hai kiloshim veshisha ish, and struck from them men the eye according to 30 and 6 men. 36 were killed. The number is derived from a multiple of 9 and 4. In the Bible, 9 is the number of finality or judgment. Four is the number of material completeness, the world number, the city number. Verse 5 continues, For they chased them from before the gate as far as Shevarim and struck them down on the descent. This is the only time in the Bible that Ha Shevarim or the Shevarim is mentioned. It comes from Shever, which signifies a fracture, as in a broken foot. Like if you try to pick up your dog and he's too heavy and you're putting him into your car and you break your foot, that's what it would mean. I got somebody laughing. She got it. We have somebody that did that in the church recently. It also signifies a breach, a crushing, destruction, or figuratively as ruin. It is surely not a location that bore the name previously. Rather, the place is named because of what occurred. There was a breach in the ranks of Israel. They panicked and fled and the ranks were then utterly broken at a particular spot, the Shevarim. From there, the men of Ai simply chased the retreating horde of Israel, striking them down as they descended. What is hard to actually determine is whether there were only 36 killed, or, as the Greek translation seems to indicate, 
36 were killed at first, and then all of the rest of the force was destroyed after that. Either way, the point is that it was evident that the Lord was not with them in the battle. Verse 5 continues, Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. This is the penalty for the corporate sin of Israel. In Joshua 2 and Joshua 5, the same word, masas, or melt, was used concerning the people of the land. That has been turned back on them now. Here's what it said first in Joshua 2. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts, masas, melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That was Rahab speaking to the spies. And then from Joshua 5, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over and that their heart masas melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. It is plainly evident that the Lord was not with Israel, and it is certain that confusion permeated the entire congregation as they pondered what this would mean for them. Why, O oh Lord, has this come about? What is it that has caused all this suffering? What has happened has caused me to doubt. What is the source of this terrible thing? Lord, we look to you and we wait for a word. We long to know what has caused this trouble. When the answer is given and we have heard, we will take action to correct it on the double. Lord, don't let anything tarnish your great name. Be with Israel and rescue us from this terrible state. Spread around the world your glorious fame. Let the nations know that your name alone is great. Our second thought today, distress, humility, and mourning. It's verses 6 through 15. In response to the events that took place, Joshua goes through a series of outward displays reflecting his inner state, surely wondering how things could have gone from glorious to disastrous in such a short amount of time. First it says, verse 6, then Joshua tore his clothes. Tearing one's garments is less a sign of mourning than it is a sign of great distress. It is an outward display of the high emotions occurring within oneself. One might say, my heart was torn by what happened. This is a sense of what is being conveyed. It is therefore why the Lord said this to the people in the book of Joel. So, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. The people were told that catastrophe was coming with the day of the Lord. In this, there would be much tearing of their garments as that distress came upon them. But the Lord corrected them, noting that outward signs without inward distress were actually ineffective. Therefore, they were to rend their hearts and turn to him. Next, verse 6 continues, and fell to his face on the earth. To fall on one's face is a demonstration of humility. It is what Avram did when the Lord appeared to him and changed his name to Avraham while promising to make his covenant with him. It is also what the people did when the Lord sent fire out to consume the burnt offering on the altar at the establishment of the priestly ministry in Leviticus chapter 9. These and many other such incidents relate to us the idea of humility from the person. Joshua did this, verse 6 continues, before the ark of the Lord until evening. Whether the ark was in the most holy place or not, 
the intent of the words is that Joshua lay prostrate before the presence of the Lord, indicated by the presence of the ark until the evening, meaning when the day had expired. And more it says, verse 6 continues, he and the elders of Israel. It's obvious that he called the leaders together for this outward display of distress, humility, and also of mourning. Verse 6 continues, and they put dust on their heads. This is a sign of distress, humility, and mourning, all tied up in one. The idea goes back to the earliest pages of Genesis. Man was formed from the dust of the earth. That's Genesis 2, verse 7. As such, it is an acknowledgment of the Lord's creation of and sovereignty over humanity. Therefore, to put dust on one's head is a sign of humility before the Creator. It is a sign of mourning because of what the curse upon the man from Genesis 3 means. Here's what it said then. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Man's lot is to return to the dust. Joshua and the elders were certainly mourning for those who were lost, but the mourning extends to all humanity who must come to the same end. Joshua, not knowing why they had been defeated, felt the onrush of that for himself and for all of Israel, anticipating that one defeat meant total defeat unless the Lord would again be with them. Dust on the head is also a sign of distress because of what the curse upon the serpent from Genesis 3 signifies. From Genesis 3, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. The serpent would dine upon the unredeemed of the world as their bodies decayed and turned back to dust. Joshua and the elders are showing their distress that the Lord may have abandoned them permanently. If so, instead of victory in Messiah, Israel would find defeat in the devil. That comes forth clearly in the next words. Verse 7, And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, Vayomer Yehoshua, Aha, Adonai Yehovah. And said Joshua, Ah, Adonai Yehovah. The interjection, Aha, meaning, Oh, Ah, or Alas, is introduced here. It is a word that extends beyond surprise to a state of woeful shock, such as when Jephthah saw his daughter coming out of the house, and he realized that he would then have to sacrifice her as a burnt offering based on a hasty vow that he had made to the Lord. Along with this word, Joshua combines the word Adonai, a reference to the Lord Jehovah as his sovereign master, and also he includes the proper name of Jehovah. The entire phrase then shouts out great distress, saying, verse 7 continues, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? The words bear a particular emphasis. Lama he avarta ha'avir et ha'am hazeh et hayarden. Why? Bringing over. You brought over. Meaning at all the people. The this, the Jordan. This appears less like a lack of faith in the Lord than a complete bewilderment of what the purposes of the Lord are. Israel was told that they would conquer the land and possess it. But suddenly there's a defeat that should not have taken place with no discernible reason for it. He simply cannot fathom what would cause this to transpire. But it did. And it therefore appears that the intent is, verse 7 continues, to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. 
Joshua mentions the Amorite. It is singular, meaning renowned, specifically because they had defeated the Amorites, Sihon and Og, on the other side of the Jordan. If this small city of Ai could prevail against Israel, then the Amorites, who were certainly bent on revenge, would tear through them without restraint, totally destroying them. Joshua appears to think that what has occurred is actually by design and that it must be based on a previously undisclosed failing prior to their entry into Canaan. Therefore, he says, verse 7 continues, Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Velu hulanu vaneshev be'ever hayarden. And oh, we had been content and we stayed inside the Jordan. The land on the other side had been subdued. For whatever reason, the Lord was displeased with Israel, and Joshua thinks it must have something to do with their crossing over. It doesn't appear at all that he has considered that something has happened since then, especially when Jericho was such a great victory. With that said, Joshua questions the Lord concerning their conduct. Verse 8, O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? Rather, the words refer to Israel collectively. Be Adonai ma Omar achare asher hafak Yisrael oref lifne oyevav. O Adonai, what I say after which turns Israel his neck before his enemies. Israel collectively has transgressed. Joshua doesn't know this yet, but Israel had turned his neck before his enemies. Joshua both knows and understands this. All Israel is the people of Jehovah. He is utterly confused as to what will come of this. Verse 9, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Again, it is singular. The Canaanite. Joshua notes that they and all of the other people groups will hear of what has transpired. When that happens, they will immediately take the initiative and come after the entire nation of Israel and utterly destroy them, cutting off their name. If that is to happen, and because Israel is the bearer of the name of Jehovah, verse 9 continues, then what will you do for your great name? Joshua has inextricably tied the name of Israel to the name of the Lord. This is because the Lord has already inextricably tied his name to that of Israel. This was clearly seen in our text verse when the psalmist equated attacking Israel as an attack against God. If what Joshua says is not turned around, these nations will align and come to destroy Israel and thus end the name of the Lord. It is what Psalm 83 conveys about the peoples surrounding them later in their history. Here's what it says. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Sounds like half the church, doesn't it? For they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria has also joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah. With this scene and noted, the Lord now responds to Joshua. Verse 10, so the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? It must be remembered that Joshua and the elders had lain prostrate before the Lord until evening. 
it is not known how long that time was, be it 45 minutes or four and a half hours. We have no idea. It is now the start of the new day. And so imperative words follow demanding action. Further, the word you in this verse, this clause is emphatic. Kum lach lama ze ata nofel al panecha. Arise to you. Why this you falling upon your face? Joshua is the leader of the people. And the people now require their leader to act. Because, verse 11, Israel has sinned. Chata Yisrael has sinned Israel. The collective nature of what occurred is highlighted here. It is as if every person in the nation was guilty of actively doing what only one person had done. That is clear with the next five clauses where the plural is used. They, 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 they. They all have done it, and they are now all under the ban. Verse 11 continues, And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. The entire verse is one clause of accusation after another, producing a strong and poignant emphasis. After the first clause, the word vegam, or and also, begins each clause, which is followed by a plural verb. Vegam avaru, vegam lakehu, vegam ganevu, vegam kichashu, vegam samu, and also they have transgressed, and also they have taken. And also, they have stolen. And also, they have deceived. And also, they have put. The collective nature of each clause is highlighted by the plural. Joshua surely understands the collective meaning and accepts it as such, even if he doesn't know yet what has transpired. This is because Jericho was to be anathema, as he conveyed quite clearly to the people from Joshua 6. And you... By all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Because of the actions of one or more people pilfering that which belonged to the Lord, the entire nation has now become anathema to the Lord. As the Lord next says, verse 12, Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies. The invasion was a small number of soldiers, but it could just as easily have been the entire army of 600,000 fighting men. The Lord had only a short time before expressed this to them in the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? The Lord had sold them, and he had surrendered them. They could not stand before even a small city. Verse 12 continues, but turned their backs before their enemies. The words are short, concise, and show the collective nature of what happened. Oref yifnu lifne oyevehem. Neck, singular, neck, they turn before their enemies. And this is, verse 12 continues, because they have become doomed to destruction. Ki hayu lecherem because they have become too anathema. In taking that which is anathema, or devoted, they have become devoted. What happened to the soldiers, be it 36 or all 3,000, was the just penalty for them, and indeed for the entire congregation, 
as the Lord says. Verse 12 continues, neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. The word shamad, destroy, is used here. Joshua knows that this is referring to not only the thing that was anathema, but the person who is now anathema as well. But depending on who it is, that may extend even further. At this time, he is unaware of the extent of it. The word shamad is translated as exiro or eject in the Greek translation of this passage. It is used only once in the New Testament, and it is probable that Paul was thinking of exactly this passage from Joshua when he wrote his instructions to those in Corinth concerning the man who was having his father's wife. Here's what he said. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away exiro from yourselves, the evil person. Evil is an infection that must be dealt with at all times and in all situations. As for Joshua, he is now told what he must do. Verse 13, get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. The Lord repeats the same thought as in verse 10, get up. He's to not only arise from lying prostrate, but to also arise to the task at hand. This task is to then have the people sanctify themselves, plural, because there is an accursed thing in your singular midst, O Israel. They are many who must sanctify themselves individually, but they are one because they are collectively anathema. As such, they are to prepare themselves lemachar, or to tomorrow. If the sun is set, this means the same day, but after the rising of the sun. Verse 13 continues, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. The meaning is clear. They will be pushed back and destroyed until the anathema is removed from their midst. The proof of that has already been handed to them in the day's defeat. That would continue unabated unless the necessary action is taken. And so, verse 14, In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to their families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. And the speculation on how this was conducted is extensive. Some argue it was determined by lots. Others demand that this could not be the case, but it was rather determined by the Urim and Thummim. If the manner in which it took place was important, we would have been told how it was done. But that is not where the focus is. Rather, it is on the fact that the Lord already knows who the offender is. And there is a process by which the man will be singled out, which incidentally now tells Joshua that there is a single offender who has brought all of this trouble upon the nation. When he is identified, bad news lies ahead for him. Verse 15, then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. A verb is used as a noun here. More rightly, it says, and it shall be the taken in the anathema shall be burned in the fire. The one whom the Lord identifies was to be burned, but that is not the entirety of the matter. Verse 15 continues, he and all that he has, because he is anathema, he must be totally destroyed. If he has possessions, they are to be destroyed too. And if he has a family, his entire family was to be destroyed. Just as it was with Jericho, there was to be no leniency on anything or anyone belonging to him. 
The law recorded in Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, does not apply here. There it said, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. That is referring to a person receiving the penalty of death under the covenant. The law of cherem, or anathema, means that the man and all that he comprises, including his family, under his authority, are subject to the ban without exception. This would have made for a really sleepless night for the offender if he knew what the Lord said to Joshua, especially if he was a family man. All was anathema. Verse 15 continues, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. Ki avar et berit Yehovah, because he has crossed over covenant Yehovah. This is more than a violation of the covenant, but causing oneself to be taken out of the covenant graces altogether. To cross over the covenant is to remove oneself from it. This is what the man has done, and his life and all that he has is now anathema. Verse 15 finishes with, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. The word nevelah is used. It is not just something disgraceful, but it is senseless in the extreme. It is a disregard for that which is moral, and it exemplifies foolishness. A word in the New Testament that might be close is the word moras, or foolish. It is equivalent to our modern word moron, where we get the word from, moras. However, Paul turns the moronic around and he uses the word in a surprising way, saying that as Christians, we must become moras, or foolish, when we think we are wise, and that the apostles are moras, they are fools for Christ's sake. The word nevelah is never used that way in the Old Testament. Such a person in the Old Testament has committed a moral violation that is deserving of whatever comes his way in regard to punishment. The one identified in the morning would get exactly what his moral state deserved. This is a good point on which to end our thoughts today. The suspense is high, and that will keep us until the next time we meet, unless the rapture happens, of course. But it is also a good point to make a comparison to what Paul did by turning around the moronic in his epistles. This is what the gospel does. It turns things around. The law brings death. The gospel brings life. The law was exclusive, belonging only to Israel. The gospel is inclusive of all peoples. The law demanded rigidity of worship. The gospel gives freedom of worship. The law brought about fear to those who understood its constraints. The gospel brings about confidence to those who understand its liberties. Where the man who is to be identified was to be removed from the people and burned to death, finding only earthly condemnation, the man who was identified for wrongdoing in 1 Corinthians 5 was to be removed for the destruction of his flesh, but also for the saving of his soul. Everything about what God offers in Christ is not only better than what is faced under the law, it is infinitely better. Where the law has an end, the gospel starts immediately, now for those who come to Christ, and it goes on for eternity. Don't miss out on what Christ has done. Come to him and find peace with God and rest from your labors. Come to Christ and find pardon from your sin. Be sure not to wait. Come to Christ Jesus today. This is what I would ask of you. This is what we're seeing. We're seeing a picture of something about Jesus again, obviously. Keep thinking about it through the week. Maybe finish reading up the rest of the passage and then think about it. What is God telling us? 
Why is he telling us these things? It's because we humans have what is called an infection. Not like Bob, who's got one in his jaw right now. It's an infection that's in our moral state. It's called sin. It's a lot worse than having something in your jaw, okay? It infects us so deeply that we are eternally separated from God, and we're born in that default position. We're already condemned, folks. But God sent Jesus coming to reverse that state. Jesus came. He was born without sin. He was born without any moral imperfection. He lived a life perfectly under the law that he had given to Israel. And then he gave up that sinless life for us. And in that transfer, we are deemed as sinless before God. The infection is removed completely and entirely forever if we will simply call on Jesus Christ. Okay? And while we're considering our salvation, if you are in fact saved, I would ask you again, like I did during the prophecy update, to tell people, open your mouth and speak out the gospel. Please tell people about Jesus because the time is winding down. It may not be winding down in the world. We may have another hundred years, which I doubt, but it's winding down for each one of us. I mean, every week somebody comes in and complains about another ache or another pain, and then I respond with my own ache and pain. We're all winding down. We don't have a lot of time to get these things done. So when you think of the people that are in your circle of influence, please hand them a track. Please tell them about Jesus. They need Jesus. This is what the world needs to take care of the infection. Jesus, okay? Change your mind and heart. Change your mind and heart. Absol you know, this morning I typed Acts 10.42. Let me read that to you. Great stuff. I mean, just great stuff. Acts... 10. Actually, I typed two verses because it's Sunday. I, I do two and then I don't have to do one on Monday. I started that a few weeks ago. What a relief because Monday goes on and on and on and I can take off an hour of commentary from Acts and I can spend it all on the sermon. Here we go. Let's see here. Acts 10 and I typed today um, uh, where am I? Oh, I said 42. I was asleep when I typed it, obviously. Um, 44 and um, uh, 43 and 44 I read, uh, typed. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. We get forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then guess what happened? He's talking to him. That's all he's doing. He's just talking to him. They've done nothing. These are people that had never heard of Jesus Christ ever in their life, Okay. You go to Pakistan and you tell somebody about Jesus who's never heard of him. That's all he did. He talked to him for about 10 sentences, gave them the gospel in a nutshell, okay? To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, through his name, Jesus, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And what does it say in verse 44? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. They didn't do anything. They didn't do anything. They just believed in their heart. God knew that they believed, and the Holy Spirit came down on them. That ought to teach us something. Our closing verse comes from 1 Corinthians 4. It's verses 4 and 5. In the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You talk about eternal salvation, here it is. Next week is Joshua 7. 
It's verses 16 through 26. After getting stoned, the penalty adds even more. Sad but true. It's entitled The Valley of Ahor. Part two. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 14th Joshua sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I've got this shirt which we've been trying to get rid of for three weeks. I think this week somebody's going to get this. I made it easy. It wasn't intentional. I wanted to make it really hard. But next week is going to be hard. Hanun, king of Ammon, did what to David's emissaries? That is it. He started it. He started it. Shaved their beards, cut off their clothes at their buttocks, and there they were embarrassed. And what did David say? He said, stay out of the city, stay in Jericho until your beards have grown back. He didn't care about the, the garments being cut off. He's like, what an embarrassment that a man would walk around without a beard. Now I want all of you gentlemen to start getting to work. Get to work. Okay, I'm so glad to get rid of that shirt. We got something here for next week. Okay, somebody brought that by at the uh, Bible class on um, uh, uh, Thursday, and so that'll be next week's. Okay, very good. Very good. This is entitled The Valley of Achor, Part 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, as the account does tell, of the tribe of Judah took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth on Bethel's east side, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up, and I they spied. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. There's no need to. But let about two or three thousand men go up and attack I. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of I are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up, but they fled before the men of I like wine from a trembly cup. And the men of I struck down about thirty-six men. For they chased them from before the gate as far as Shevarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted, becoming like water it would seem. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face until evening before the ark of the Lord, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads all with one accord. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us, he cried, into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on Jordan's other side. Oh, Lord, what shall I say about this attack when Israel before its enemies turns its back? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us. What a shame! And cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up from that place. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, as if their blessings were not enough. And they have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, sad but true. 
because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies. For you, it will not go well until you take away, hear me, my word is true, the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. This is the plan. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has a burning hell, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Okay, we got uh, Lord's Supper to take, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough thing sometimes to consider the words of the Bible, especially when we think of what's going to happen to this guy next week. But we're being shown typology of what Israel deserves and what actually all of us deserve. Yes. This is what we're saying. And so we can't look too hard on the Lord and say, gee, you know, why, why, why don't you just forgive the guy? He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus. That's what we need is Jesus. So let's remember that as we listen to these very difficult passages, all interspersed all throughout Scripture. It's difficult, but it is showing us the love and the grace of God in Christ. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the wonderful things you have done for us. Thank you for the glory which you have displayed in the giving of your son. Thank you for what this Lord's Supper signifies to us, the death of our Lord until he comes again. Thank you for what he has done. Thank you for the redemption and the forgiveness of sins that we have because of him. Yes, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.